This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, they certainly aren't coming down as fast as they went up, but nonetheless, we are seeing a sustained drop in gas prices. Here in Southern California, we're getting closer to the $6 per gallon mark, and who would ever think we'd be happy to be paying only $6? We'll try to explain what's behind the recent price drop at the pump. A San Francisco OBGYN is proposing a novel idea to get abortion access for women living in Republican southern states. She wants to set up a floating abortion clinic, yeah, on a ship in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. So we'll talk with her about that effort. And it turns out Joe Biden is not just unpopular overall in America. He's unpopular even within his own political party. Longtime Trump advisor Steve Bannon says he's ready to cooperate with the January 6th commission. But uh, is it a genuine about face or is this a legal scheme? There's growing evidence that all the safety gear and tech crammed in the new car is actually distracting us to the point of being unsafe. And then there's also, you know, the infotainment and all the buttons to press and the shows to get. So that probably makes it worse. And then when restaurants need um, what they don't need, just what they need, actually, extortion is targeting restaurants for a flood of negative reviews and ratings on Google and Yelp. And then they demand money to pay them to stop leaving the one star reviews. Yeah, nothing like uh, driving and catching up and doing some binge watching at the same time. That's right. (laughs) Stream your favorite shows on the 405. (laughs) We start, though, talking about cars with gas prices finally going in the right direction. But for how long? Tom Close is publisher, chief analyst at the Oil Price Information Service. Tom, thanks for being with us. Uh, So is this just like a kind of temporary respite? Are the prices going to start shooting up again as the weeks go by, or are we heading for the long term in the right way? I I would suggest we not uh, talk about long term because most of the drafts are updrafts in the wind. But you are going to see lower prices here in the short term, not dramatically lower and not matching the $1.25 drop in wholesale prices. The fact of the matter is we had what I would call the recession sessions in late June and uh, through last uh, Tuesday or so, but they've given way to normal sort of price uh, flexing out there. And, you know, I think you'll see a little bit lower prices and you may see the the rogue Costco or other off-price retailer at about, uh, you know, at under $6, certainly. But I don't think this is a big trend. I think it's more of just an interlude. So the recession fears um, brought the prices down, but we still have everything else going on, right? We've got the war in Ukraine, we've got all that, and then we've got summer driving season, so that's probably not going to help either. Yeah, and and, you know, it it always amazes me that people go, well, why aren't they dropping their prices? You know, I mean, gasoline is very visible, and you hear about the price of wholesale gas dropping a dollar and a quarter, and you go, hey, come on. But the reality is most businesses, let's say you're, you're a hotel uh, uh, operator during Super Bowl weekend, you're not going to lower your prices. You're seeing the greatest demand that you might see in your lifetime. And we're not seeing the greatest gasoline demand or consumption in our lifetime. But certainly in 2022, this is the month. This is the month where people are hitting the road, regardless of how it's hitting their pocketbooks. And if you've flown recently, you know, it is not very pleasant to fly. So the shorter trips for vacation are uh, basically being updrafted by the worries about airlines. You know, the White House has been floating this notion with our allies about putting a cap, if that's even possible, 
on the price of, of Russian oil with the notion that it would A, punish Russia, but B, perhaps bring down the price of oil and therefore the price of gas for the rest of us. Does that sound like it's even plausible? It doesn't strike me as very plausible. It's kind of like wage and price controls of the 70s uh, being sort of adopted for the globe. And it's very, very difficult to uh, sell to a lot of our allies. You know, I, there, there are a few levers that the White House can really uh, pull, particularly for this driving season. There's some things that they could do down the road for next year, but it's going to be tough. And let's face it. You know, the, the White House and oil and gas companies have a very adversarial relationship, whether they're oil producers or whether they're uh, refiners. And marketers right now are having what I would regard as a big inning, you know, maybe like the giant, uh, the, not the giants, the Dodgers have every once in a while. But, uh, you know, there's no compelling reason to drop your price to match the wholesale decreases when you're seeing the highest demand of the year. Tom Closa, publisher, chief analyst, the Oil Price Information Service. To, to your point at the beginning, it's like, come on, five fifty nine, come on, yeah, five ninety nine, come down just one more cent. <laughs> yeah, but at, at the end of the day, it's still it's, too much. It's still hundred dollars when <laughs> yeah. you go to fill out the tank. Uh, coming up, a proposed floating abortion clinic could be a refuge for women who are in Republican Gulf states. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, Steve Bannon says he's ready to play nice with the January 6th commission, but how believable is that? And in the second hour of In-Depth, we get an update on the wildfire in Yosemite threatening the giant sequoias there. Right now, though, with uh, Democratic-led states preparing for an influx of women from Republican states who might travel there for abortion access, there's a California-based OBGYN who has a novel idea for providing abortion services for living in southern states. Dr. Meg Autry is an obstetrician and gynecologist at the UCSF Mount Zion Women's Health Center. Doctor, thanks for being with us. What's the novel idea you have? <laughs> One novel idea is not to be on the highway in L.A., it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, this idea is to uh, provide comprehensive reproductive health services on a, in a uh, floating clinic in federal waters in the Gulf of Mexico. Because those waters would give you the, the leniency and, and you'd be under the, the correct laws to, to be able to do this? You're not under the state laws of those uh, Gulf Coasts and, and that's the idea, serve those places? Correct. That is our legal team believes that comprehensive legal and um, comprehensive reproductive health services are legal in federal waters. Now, of course, that would also depend on whether or not some of these states try to enforce an all out ban on abortion, even if a woman were to go outside the state. Uh, right. I mean, that means then that they're going after the patients. Right. So that's a. Um, that's a kind of a big deal. I mean, that that would set a precedent potentially for other things like sending people out of the state for other services that aren't available in your state, for example, cancer treatment or something like that. Okay, so so TBD on those. What gave you this idea, though? And over the past few days, when you've gotten a whole bunch of press, what has the reaction been like? Yeah, so the idea really, honestly, like I've thought about it for several years. And originally, you know, I mean, 
people who are anti-choice and wanting to restrict reproductive um, rights and bodily autonomy, you know, they've been chipping away for many years. So I've had this idea germinating and it originally um, my idea was a vessel on the Mississippi River. And the reason I came up with that was because, um, you know, of the casino boats or the gambling boats. And I thought, you know, there's got to be something different about the water than there is the land. And how is that allowed to happen? And so we investigated it with our uh, maritime legal team and ultimately decided that um, that river was not really a good option. And then, you know, over the last year, as the reproductive health climate has deteriorated um, and most recently with the Dobbs decision, we've just accelerated our um, research and investigation and plans. And um, so if you look at the Gulf of Mexico, every single state on the Gulf either restricts or bans um, reproductive health services. And um, there is a swath of water that's federal um, that we believe uh, services could be delivered. Okay, so plan is one thing. Planning is one thing. Having the, the funding and buying the, the ship and getting the crew and all that other stuff is another. Has anyone come forward since this idea has been, excuse the pun, floated to say they're going to pay for all this? I mean, so many puns, right? I know. <laughs> Before we launch, aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, the outpouring has been spectacular, I would say, like, especially from the states where um, services are restricted. And so, you know, we know that the majority of the country doesn't agree with the, the Dobbs decision. And so the, the, the response has really been um, overwhelming. Practically, how many people would you expect to, to serve and, and how often would you do this and how much is it going to cost in the end? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think the real point I want to get across is that wealthy people in our country can get the health care that they want um, whenever and wherever they want. Right. And there are incredible organizations and individuals who are way more creative and innovative than I working on um, you know, ways to do this. And so, but if you look at the southernmost parts of all these states on the Gulf, even if people have their journeys paid for, you know, it is almost impossible to get somewhere where there's access within a 24-hour time frame. So certainly with driving, if you look at the southernmost tip of Texas, you can't get to New Mexico, which is the closest state, and ha you know make an appointment and have a have an appointment and be back. And so if you're like a single parent or the sole caregiver, it would be it's virtually impossible to get somewhere in that time frame. So we are hoping to help poor people, people of color, marginalized communities that don't have the options that people with more means have. So it's um, the services for the patients will be um, needs based and. Uh, so the patients will pay pay little to nothing, um, and it's going to be big, right? There are 
immediate expenses like acquisition of a vessel unless of course someone wants to donate one um, and then we have to get it retrofitted because it has to meet clinic standards that are on the land right and then there will be ongoing costs of crew medical equipment so very briefly because yeah. we're going to run out of time what's the time frame what's your time frame for getting it this all up depends and running? on when we get the vessel yeah <laughs> right all right, Dr. Meg Autry with the idea to put the, the boat out there in the Gulf of Mexico. Obstetrician, gynecologist, UCF, UCSF, Mount Zion's uh, Women's Health Center. Doctor, thanks. Coming up, Joe Biden's road to re-election looking bumpier than Wilshire Boulevard. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Coming up at the end of the uh, first hour of In-Depth, multiple cameras, multiple screens, and endless gadgets and our new cars, all in the name of safety. But what if all of those distractions are actually making us far less safe? Right now, though, some ugly new polling numbers for President Biden today in the New York Times. Not only is the president uh, sporting a 33 percent overall job approval rating, he's not very much better with his own Democrats. Chris Saliza, senior political analyst and editor-at-large at CNN, back with us. Chris, thanks. So uh, it seems like we do this story every month or so, and the numbers, they're not getting any better. They're not. Um, and, and as bad as his number, the 33% of, of people who approve of the job he's doing, I actually think there's a more concerning number in that poll, which is that people were asked, you know, are you planning to uh, support would you like to see Joe Biden as your next presidential nominee for Democrats, or would you like to see someone else? And this is just among people who say they plan to vote in the 2024 Democratic primary. 64% of voters said they want the party to nominate a candidate other than Biden. Again, reminder, these are people, these are not Republicans. These are people who say they're going to vote in the Democratic primary. Even more worrisome, young voters, 18 to 29 year olds. Remember a decade ago, we were talking about how this was the base of the new Democratic Party. 5%, you did not mishear me, 5% said they want Biden to run again. Well, I would imagine if the White House is even somewhat conscious, they must be extremely concerned. Gosh, I, if they're not, I think that's even more concerning. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, look, we if past is prologue and in politics, history is usually a pretty good indicator. The first midterm election of a president's term is not great for his party. It is even worse when that president's approval rating is under 50%. Since 20, uh, all the way from uh, the end of World War II to 2018, the average seat loss for a president's party when that president was under 50% approval was 37 House seats, which if that was replicated this time around, Republicans would have the majority by a significant number. And remember, Biden isn't anywhere close to 50%. He's He'd be happy with 40 percent at this time. Uh, I think the White House is worried. I think a lot of the things they view as problematic for Joe Biden are what they would say is out of his hands. Inflation, uh, gas prices, uh, COVID-19, obviously the, the BA5 subvariant uh, sort of coming back around. You know, they, they would argue, look, he, there's only so much a president, any, any president in Joe Biden in particular can do about these things. I'm not sure the American public is going to give him that pass, though. Do they just bank on the hope that uh, Democrats will be super motivated by things like the Supreme Court decision? I mean, is there anything to show that that's yeah. actually going to happen? So I think you've seen some 
polling data that suggests the Roe v. Wade ruling, the overturning of Roe v. Wade has energized and, and convinced Democratic voters of the stakes. It's always hard when you're the party who controls the White House, the House and the Senate, it's always hard to convince your base in the next election why it's really important to vote because they think, well, we kind of we kind of have control of everything. It, it happens to Republicans, it happens to Democrats. I think the Roe decision um, made clear the stakes for some Democrats who may have stayed home. The, the question I have is, does that overcome or mitigate in a significant way these historic trends that are pretty clear uh, when it comes to a president's approval rating and what that means for his party? Maybe at the margins, it helps Democrats, but I don't think anything is stopping this train coming down the tracks. So are the people who are in the vice president's uh, camp, are they kind of, you know, salivating at the prospects that perhaps Joe Biden will not run again and it will be her turn? Or are they equally concerned? Well, I think they're concerned uh, in that sort of whatever happens to Biden, it, it kind of hits the whole administration. I don't think Kamala Harris can say, oh, that wasn't me. Right. You don't get the good things of being vice president without the bad things. That said, and they would never admit to this. I mean, I think that they probably looked very carefully at the front page of The New York Times on Sunday uh, with a story about Joe Biden's age and the concerns that even some within the White House have. He is 79 years old. He will turn 82 shortly after the 2024 election. Excuse me. Yes, the 2024 election. And he'd be 86 almost when he left office if he won re-election. Uh, obviously he the, was the oldest president ever elected to a first term by a significant amount. Um, so I, you know, I think for Kamala Harris, there's nothing to be gained to, by saying anything other than, I, I expect Joe Biden to run and I expect to be the vice president on his ticket. That said, if Joe Biden does not run, uh, I think she has to have a plan and team and approach and strategy in place and ready to go quickly, because I don't think she would have the field to herself. I'm not even sure she'd be the only major Californian in the field. Uh, I think Gavin Newsom running ads in Florida against Ron DeSantis, as he did uh, last week, is a sign that he is at least looking beyond his re-election race this November. Oh, I, I know that name. <laughs> yes. I yes. know that name. You may be familiar with that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. The, the heard, person heard who, who all the statements <laughs> seem to be very national in scope lately. Uh, Chris Saliza, senior political analyst, editor-at-large, CNN. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Steve Bannon's had a change of heart, maybe. Longtime Trump advisor, whose criminal contempt of Congress trial is approaching next week, informing the House committee investigating January 6th. He's ready. He'll cooperate. Wants to testify publicly about what he knew, saw, and heard in the run-up to the insurrection. But is this a genuine effort at cooperation by Bannon? We're mostly disingenuous legal maneuvering. Barbara McQuaid is a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, currently a professor at the University of Michigan Law School. Thanks for being back with us. Uh, Would it be a real stretch of the imagination to think that perhaps Steve Bannon is up to something? I think it is not a stretch of the imagination at all. In fact, if you read the motion filed by the Justice Department, they essentially say so in their pleadings that... Steve Bannon violated the law nine months ago, and he can't erase that violation of the law by now offering to testify. You know, there's always been this 
uh, imaginary assertion of executive privilege, which number one, Donald Trump never asserted. Number two, it wasn't his to assert. Number three, Steve Bannon was not subject to it. Number four, the DC Circuit Court of Appeals has said, even if there was an executive privilege here, the need to investigate what happened on January 6th outweighs it. Nonetheless, despite all of that, he says now he's ready to testify. And I think this is properly seen as the Justice Department alleges as simply an issue to cloud the issues for the jury at trial. So he can say, look, I, I agreed to testify. It wasn't until July that Donald Trump waived the privilege. I, my hands were tied. And so they have asked, the Justice Department has, the judge to exclude evidence of this letter because they too believe it to be a gimmick. So if it is, you know, last ditch effort to not be accountable for that, would it even work though? I mean, would it head off a trial or that's already in motion? Sorry, it's happening. And this is just all going to be supplemental stuff that he hopes to get in there. Yeah, I think it could create an issue of confusion for the jury, which is why the Justice Department has asked that it not be admissible. You know, it would create an, an opportunity for him to argue that he couldn't have testified until Donald Trump waived the privilege. Uh, and then, you know, the Justice Department would have to then start getting into these arguments I just made about the law and about privilege. And it's confusing. And, and I think that's the purpose of it. The Justice Department has cited a rule of evidence that says if a, a piece of evidence is um, more likely to create confusion than to be probative of any relevant issue, it should be excluded from evidence. And so I think that's what they're seeking to do. The judge is going to rule on that sometime in the next few days. Now, of course, we're talking about his trial, but when it comes to the committee hearings, uh, since they've been asking him to testify, it would be difficult for them to deny it, wouldn't it? Um, I don't know, because what they wanted was for him to testify at a de deposition last October. When investigators investigate cases, they have a strategy and they want to talk to certain people before they talk to other people. They also asked him for documents that he has not produced, nor has he even suggested in this new letter that he will produce. And so to just show up now, I don't know that it helps them very much. Um, and he's also said, I'll only testify if I can do so publicly. Well, it seems to me that that's just an opportunity for him to come in and uh, be a very disruptive force to poison the well to say all kinds of outrageous things. I think what they'd like to do is what they've done before, which is talk to a person behind closed doors for as many hours as it takes and pull teeth to get the information that they want. And then if and only if they get anything that's probative, then either call that witness live for a public hearing or play video clips of the portions that are relevant to the story that they're trying to tell. In a world where he actually does appear, what do they want from him? I imagine one thing is, what do you mean on the podcast when you said all hell's going to break loose tomorrow? Yes, I think that's exactly what they're looking for. And also, you know, he was part of that war room group that was meeting at the Willard Hotel with Rudy Giuliani and Roger Stone and others. And I think one big question most of us has is, was there a coordinated effort to attack the Capitol? Was it just a mob that got out of hand or uh, was the Trump campaign in either knowledge of what the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers were planning to do, or were they co-conspirators in all of that? So I think that's part of the strategy. Now, I think one possibility is the committee just says, thanks, no thanks, Steve Bannon. You had your chance in October. Time's up. Go to trial. The Justice Department convicts him at trial, and then they can serve him with a subpoena to testify before the grand jury. If he should invoke his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination there, they can trump that, pardon the use of that term, uh, by granting him use immunity and saying, we won't use your statements against you, but you need to come tell us the truth. And if he refuses then, 
uh, a judge can send him to jail. So that's the way they treat mobsters, and I think that's the way they should treat Steve Bannon. Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. Attorney, Eastern District of Michigan, currently professor, University of Michigan Law. Well, when we come back, all of the high-tech gadgets in our new cars, you know, they're meant to make us safer, at least that's what we're told, but might they actually be driving us to dangerous levels of distraction? This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Well, get behind the wheel of just about any new car these days, even the base models, and you will be confronted with a host of cameras and sensors and alarms and gadgets, all with the goal of increasing safety for drivers. Also, there's some you know, entertainment issues, too. But there is some increasing evidence that all of that gear is instead overwhelming drivers with too much information, to the point it's becoming dangerous. David Strayer, professor of cognition and neuroscience, focus on studying distractions and attention deficits, University of Utah. David, thanks for being here. So, yeah, are we right on that line, or maybe we're over the line at this point, of being able to, I don't know, drive and concentrate on that with everything else that's going on in that car around us? Yeah, I think we kind of passed that uh, that safety mark a while ago. We're, we're uh, Cars are outfitted with all kinds of cameras and touch screens and voice commands and heads-up displays. And we've kind of outfitted the the modern vehicle with uh, what was the equivalent of, uh, you know, the fighter uh, cockpit uh, of uh, 50 years ago. And so uh, just like you could overload a pilot and make them uh, distracted and, and end up having uh, bad outcomes, now we're overloading our drivers. The technology in the car is you know, basically not designed well, and it's overloading. Okay, and the evidence is what? A couple of things. First of all, we can actually measure how long you take your eyes off the road when you're looking at the GPS and programming the GPS or trying to send a text. And we know that uh, in many cases, you're taking your eyes off the road for, you know, 10, 15 seconds, which if you're trying to drive down the freeway with your eyes off the road for that long, you're going to have problems. Um, we know in terms of just the mental effort, in terms of looking at all the ways we record, uh, you know, levels of distraction, that the distraction potential of a lot of that technology is just too high. We also see increased number of crashes and the risk of a crash. And one of the things that's maybe the most alarming thing is for the last, say, over the last 50 years, we saw a systematic decrease in the number of fatalities and injuries on the road. But that stopped, and now you see the number of crashes and fatalities starting to go up again. And that's uh, completely correlated with uh, the infusion of technology into the vehicle. So our cars are not making us safer with all that technology. Now, is this an issue of there's so much safety equipment and flashing lights on your mirrors or in front of you, or it's dinging about a hazard that may or not may or may not be there, you know, 300 feet in front of you? Or is it that the infotainment system and the GPS have a giant screen, and even if someone sends me a text, I have to press the button for it to read the text to me and my eyes are still off the road? Or is it all of the above? You know, uh, a lot of the stuff is all that new technology, the, the, the junk that gets streamed to you that uh, used to be on your phone and now it's in your car. Uh, some of the things like collision avoidance and, and uh, you know, lane change uh, monitors and blind spot warnings, those are actually probably helping out a little bit. So even with that benefit of all that technology, we're still seeing uh, safety technology. You're still seeing uh, crashes and fatalities increase. So this is uh, just distraction on steroids. But of course, the problem is that for car makers, right, 
all of these gadgets are are selling points, right? I mean, you know, you go on a website, for example, and you look at, you know, whatever the brand is, one car, and they like to talk about how they've got all this sort of new stuff that's on their cars, and you go on a website for a competitor, the same thing. It's going to be a real hard and maybe even impossible sell to get them to scale back. Uh, I mean, you're right that that it turns out to be kind of the trying to one-upsmanship in terms of the kind of technology that you ha- one vehicle manufacturer has in their in their car versus another. But the problem is that this stuff just doesn't work very well. So I'm, if you ask a lot of your uh, people who are listening as they're driving right now, if they bought a new car, a lot of the stuff they paid for doesn't work very well. It's extremely frustrating, very distracting. There's whole websites are designed to help the consumer figure out what their car does. My car does what? Because there's this stuff in the car that's just so poorly designed. Have we gotten a little bit better? I mean, you go back a few years and there was like almost a mouse and you had to move it around and click. And that is obviously a huge problem. But now you can press a button on your wheel and kind of use it like it's Siri or something and say, hey, play this song or call this person. Is that at least a little bit safer? Um, Sometimes things are a little safer. Um, But the problem is that while we've made a few types of interactions easier, we've added more things that are more distracting. Big screen, 17-inch displays, touch screens, enabled all kinds of features and streaming social media and things like that. So, yeah, some parts of it uh, have gotten better. Um, And and certainly some aspects of of technology are making uh, it easier to drive. But the problem is it's mingled in with a bunch of stuff that's just not very good. You know, the, the, the big uh, uh, software companies, you know, Apple and uh, Google, they're, uh, uh, they're, the systems they have, CarPlay and Android Auto, are easier to use. And when we've tested them, they outperform what you'd get uh, with whatever you buy and it comes stock with your vehicle. But they're still hard to use. It's, it's not a free lunch. Do you think there's an undercount too when it comes to distracted driving and however many crashes we get reported? Because if you if you get in a wreck and the cop comes and he asks you what happened, I'm not going to say, "Well, I was scrolling for a song and I ran into the guy." Sorry. Oh, there's no question whatsoever that there's a huge undercount. Um, a lot of times they don't have access to the information. The police are there to try and you know uh, clear the road so that uh, so that traffic can get moving, and you have to rely on what someone decides they're going to report. And they may not even realize that they're distracted. They may have been so distracted that they're unaware of the distraction. All right. David Strayer, professor of cognition and neuroscience, uh, focus on studying distractions, attention deficit. He's at the University of Utah. I like that last part, that you know, line. You know, so my, distracted, don't even know it was distracting you. My car has, has kind of learned some of my habits, like where I go in certain days. And if I don't go to the place it thinks I should be going, it gets very upset. Yeah. And then I have to argue with it. My phone creeped me out one time. This was a while back. It still does it. But it knows exactly where I work. And it's because I came. But it didn't say like, oh, go to go to K-Earth. Right. Or the others. It said, no, go to K-N-X. Yeah, see, it How knows. does it know I work at K-N-X? Because it's too smart. It's listening in. It's listening in and it's reading your emails. Well, thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> More in depth to come. Another half an hour on the way. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. The Grove of Ancient Sequoias in Yosemite, uh, yet again under threat from a wildfire. Washburn fire started last week. It's 2,300 acres so far. It's officially entered the Mariposa Sequoia Grove. Firefighters taking some extraordinary steps to try and protect these trees. Some of them 
over 2,000 years old. There's a sprinkler system in action right now around the 209-foot-tall grizzly giants acquired to keep the uh, tree and forest floor damp. Nancy Phillippe is a fire information spokesperson at Yosemite National Park. Nancy, thanks for being with us. The, the grizzly is actually, isn't that believed to be about 3,000 years old? Yeah, um, may, maybe not quite that old, but yeah, anywhere from 2,000 to 3,000 years old. It is one of the oldest trees in, in Yosemite. So tell us the threat as it stands right now. We mentioned some of the things that you are doing. Obviously, there's the sprinklers there. Try and keep the flames down or at least the humidity up. Uh, give as much the chance as you can. Absolutely. And we've had firefighters removing hazard fuels as much as possible, using tools to scrape down to bare mineral soil. And then also in the past, just relying on some of our prescribed burning projects that we've done in the grove as well. You know, in, in the past, I know it, it was often thought that these trees, because of their just their nature, uh, were somewhat protected from fire. But that isn't thought to be the case anymore. Um, they are a fire resilient, resistant tree. If if the conditions are right, where we don't want to be seeing flame lengths of one hundred to two hundred feet. When you're seeing flame lengths like that with unwanted fire. I mean, that's as tall as some of these giant sequoias. So uh, low-intensity, uh, low-growth fires are, are obviously a better way for the, the trees, as the sequoia pine cones themselves need heat in order to open up and release their seeds. Yeah, okay, so some kind of fire, but not this kind of fire. How active is what you're fighting right now, and how tough of a firefight is this? The terrain is a problem. Terrain is a problem, and then the the fire movement right now is kind of in the north, northeastern direction uh, towards the community of Wawona. So that's another huge factor is that we had to evacuate those community members on Friday afternoon. So firefighter safety, the the sequoia trees, and as well as our community are our top priorities. What happened to the idea of wrapping the trees with, I guess it's a foil? Is that just not thought to be very effective? Um, so the the Galen Clark Historic Cabin, the museum area, was actually wrapped. The historic structure was wrapped with that protective foil. And our scientists and ecologists came out and took a look at, at what we have set up in the hazard fuel reduction. And in combination with that temporary sprinkler system, we're feeling really confident that that system was going to be the best protection to give the trees. What's it been like to have to have done this multiple times over the last few years and have these these giants that everyone wants to preserve threatened like this? Honestly, it was my first time experiencing the sprinkler system in action, and it's amazing and a creative solution and and way to to help slow fire spread. Are we any closer to knowing what actually? cause this particular fire? There, there are no lightning strikes, right? Correct. And the National Park Service, if somebody does have our own uh, fire investigator who is on scene um, within a few minutes of, of the report of the fire initially. And we do have a team of other investigators who are taking a look at that. How's the weather? Still under investigation. How's the weather? weather What's it going to be like? was, yeah, hotter and drier. And we are trending that way direct in that manner still 
you know, it is mid-July, and that, those are the normal temperatures kind of that we see. So people, of course, this being vacation time, who want to go to Yosemite or who have plans already to go there, what do they need to know? The Wawona Road, the Highway 41, and the south entrance is closed still. So we're asking people to just use patience as the entrance station on the other sides of the gates are having a higher visitor ratio right now. So just be patient. And um, those with uh, sensitive groups, please just check the air quality as well. Yeah, going to be smoking. Nancy Phillippe, Fire Information Spokesperson, Yosemite National Park. Okay, when we come back, restaurants having bad reviews weaponized against them by extortionists. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Restaurant reviews on Google or Yelp can be pivotal in making or breaking a business success. Um, are we really going to eat at a place with two stars when there's one right next door with four? A group no, of go. extortionists in the Bay Area have caught on to this, and they've learned how to weaponize restaurant reviews. Yeah, the scheme goes like this. Extortionists start racking up tons of negative reviews and low ratings for a restaurant on Google and Yelp. Then they reach out to the restaurant with an offer. We'll stop the negative reviews if you pay us off. Kim Alter is chef and owner of the restaurant Nightbird. That's in uh, San Francisco, and her restaurant was a target of this particular kind of scam. Uh, Kim, thanks for being with us. So when did it take place and how much money did they want? And just give us a quick lowdown on what went down there. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, You know, on Tuesday, uh, the day after 4th of July, I just woke up to an email saying, we're a family from India. Um, We need $75 that won't hurt your business, but it'll feed our family for weeks. We've already put negative reviews up. And if you don't pay us, we'll keep putting reviews up. We're really sorry. Um, And then that was it. And then I posted it and multiple restaurants started reaching out to me. And I didn't even realize I had negative reviews. And I went and looked, I had about 10 one stars. And I'd say restaurants then from all over the country, Texas, Chicago, New York started reaching out and being like, hey, we got the same email. And I just, you know, was surprised that we've definitely had customers try to like use this technique, but never, um, never on this level. Did you have to pay the money or did you get to Google or Yelp and they took those off? And what kind of process was that like? Um, I would never pay anybody (laughs) even, I mean, I know that that might not sound smart, but I just, I'm not going to fall into that. Um, so I just started, uh, using Twitter and Instagram and I started flagging all the reviews and doing kind of whatever I could to be as loud as I could because review sites and platforms like Yelp and Google will never side with the business. They kind of normally, I'd say 98% of the time side with the customer or the reviewer. So, um, I was kind of surprised our reviews actually got taken down within 24 hours, but even today, um, at least three of my friends who own restaurants here are like, we cannot get these reviews down. They're saying they're valid. What'd you do? And I just keep telling people what I did so that hopefully they'll come down. And <laughs> make as much noise as possible, right? Yeah, I, I mean, do, do you go to, to police? Do you, do you go to any law enforcement? And if so, what do they do? Or what do they say? Well, you know, I've had somebody actually fraudulently take $15,000 um, from our account. And when I went to police, they said that 
minimum amount of money to even get a conversation with a um, officer would be $25,000. And it would take years, if anything, and you'd probably never see a refund. So for me, I just reached out to like the actual sites, but I have friends who reached out to the FBI. I had friends who reached out to um, the BBB, like everyone they could, um, because they wanted to make sure that, you know, it wouldn't affect their business negatively, which it does. Bad reviews are not good for you. How did that happen? That the 15 grand, how did they get that? Um, that was through actually uh, PayPal um, and somebody had uh, been able to access our debit card and it turned into this. It took a long time for me to get money back because Stripe and PayPal were two companies that we had to use as a company and someone was able to funnel in and take money um, and it it took eight months for me to get the money back, um, but it was eye-opening when I actually spoke to um, government officials and they're just like, that's nothing. Like you need hundreds of thousands basically to, to make an impact to get us to help you. But am I right? There's, there is nothing to stop this group or whomever it is that's doing it from doing it again. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I think that what's unfortunate is I feel like these sites could easily you could find where these people are and at least turn off their ability to continually do this or at least take the reviews down. But it seems that most of these sites are not taking the effort. And it's it's like if you have a platform where people can review, I would hope that you would have um, at least like somebody a human to help uh, make sure that these reviews are fair. Um, I know everyone has their own opinion, but it's obvious that most of these reviews on a, at least, you know, 30 restaurants are completely false. Right. I mean, and it doesn't seem doesn't seem super hard. And look, yeah. if someone didn't like the service or they had a bad night or whatever, they didn't like the food, then leave a review and then you can 100%. text them back and, and talk it over. But if if there's a whole bunch of like one stars with no comments showing up and maybe they're not even coming from a place that is in your city, then it shouldn't be incredibly difficult to figure out that something else is happening. Yeah, you would think so. But my friend at Octavia and my friend Lori, who owns uh, Rose's Luxury, both of them got responses from Google this morning saying these reviews are valid. So it's like, and they sent them the email. They, you know, I, you know, took pictures of the reviews, took pictures of the email, sent it to Google, and we were fortunate. And I think it's just because I was the loudest. And, and it's unfortunate that like, that's what you have to do to, you know, protect your business now sometimes. Do you think you've already lost some customers? I mean, I'm sure that there was a moment that someone was trying to make a review or make a reservation and they maybe were visiting and they didn't know who we are, or what we're about. And maybe they chose another restaurant that didn't have one stars like that blocked their entire view. I brought our whole rating down three points, I believe. We're normally like in the 4.9, 4.8 range and a browse down to 4.4. So I'm sure, you know, some folks who don't know are just like, yep, let's go somewhere else you know, forget that place. So yeah, I think it, it does affect people. Yeah. I mean, that can be the, the way you put it. Some people, especially if they, they go in to read, cause they say, Oh, 3.6, that doesn't seem that bad. But then they go to the page and then if it's like 10 in a row, then they think, yeah. Oh, for a week now, this place has been terrible. I don't want to go there at all. And especially what if you're not established? What if you're like a new place trying to get up and running and they hit you with this? Yeah, that totally happened. My friend, the whole cancel culture thing where it's like Yelp bombing is what they call it. Like go and Yelp bomb this place because we don't agree with, you know, their standards or something they did instead of just it being about what we do is cook. <laughs> it's turned yeah. into something totally different. And it's, um, it's, I just hope that at some point there's more regulation of, you know, so people can make better judgments um, or they could just come in and try for themselves instead of reading reviews. Like, let's try that. <laughs> but who knows? Kim Alter, chef and owner of the restaurant Nightbird up in San Francisco. Go try Nightbird in San Francisco. Thanks, Kim. That's in depth for today. Back tomorrow, 1 p.m. How, uh, how many stars do we have? 
Oh. I don't know. Should we look that Yeah, up? let's take a look. Let's yeah. see. Oh. <laughs> we'll tell you tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> All right. More in-depth tomorrow, 1 p.m.